0: Session with Dr. Fadid Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadid Holaki. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310 441 0555 feels good to be back i didn't do any shows last week so i'm happy to be back and we'll jump into the book of the week which technically is from two weeks ago because i didn't do any shows last week so there's gonna be a lot of books to talk about um before i get started today because there's also a book of the week for last week which was the subtle art of not giving a blank a counterintuitive approach to living a good life by mark Manson. Uh, this book was recommended to me by uh, KK. Thank you for that again. Um, and I do always appreciate people sending me recommendations. And this is a book I'd read about, heard about, or you see it at a lot of bookstores. It has obviously a title that catches out to you and a cover that catches uh, your eye. Um, but it was, I guess, that push from KK that finally made me do that. So fingers crossed that people will keep sending me more recommendations um, for books of the week. So thank you again, KK, for that. And then uh, the book of the week for this week, which I'll talk about next week. So The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Blank, I'll talk about on Wednesday. But then for this week, the book is How We Learn and Why It Happens by Benedict Carey. So that book I'll talk about on next Monday's show. It's a little bit confusing Hopefully it all makes sense, but I'll jump into the book of the week from two weeks ago that I haven't gotten a chance to talk about yet. Uh, And this book was another one that my brother Parham had recommended to me a few months ago, and I'm glad I finally got around to reading it. And that is How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. And it was a really fascinating book. I highly recommend it. Uh, Definitely on the longer side of the books, I've read for the Books of the Week, over 400 pages. But it was definitely one that I was very interested to keep turning the pages and see what he had to write. So Michael Pollan is a wonderful science writer. And in this book, he delves into the world of psychedelics. And he doesn't just delve into it as a writer. He also delves into it as um, what they might call a psychonaut or someone who experiences psychedelics because he actually tries a few of them and he describes his journeys into trying various psychedelics and that was also quite interesting. So um, psychedelic drugs have been around for a while. Well, I guess you can say for a long time because in some more... Uh, native communities, they've been using it for a long time for different types of rituals and different types of things. But in the Western world, they really were more introduced in the 1900s. And these drugs, um, there's a few names you maybe have heard of, things like LSD or magic mushrooms. Um, uh, psilocybin, which is just, which is an active compound find found in mushrooms that make them act in this way. Um, there's also Peyote and other drugs as well like that. But basically uh, a psychedelic and even these drugs have gone through lots of names. But a psychedelic uh, is a drug that changes consciousness in some ways. And I mean that can be a vague term, but in some way makes you see things differently or, or think differently while you're under the influence of them. And drugs like LSD, do that. When people are experiencing it, they can see things they usually don't see. They see the world in ways they usually don't see. And it can be quite uh, an intense experience, oftentimes very good, but oftentimes uh, or sometimes what people can experience is what we might call a bad trip. And he talks about that in the book too, uh, as well. And that's another thing I enjoyed about the book was that he didn't seem to be pushing an agenda. He was sharing the history and the science and his own experiences with the drugs that were... More recent, um, but there wasn't this feeling that he wanted you to think something or he wanted to convince you of something in particular. Just sharing the the facts or the information, and so the book starts with the history of psychedelics, and that part was very interesting to see, because I think when we think of drugs like LSD or also called acid, it has a it brings a lot of connotations with it, a lot of maybe judgments or ways you think about. Um, those drugs, mostly negative. And he gets in the history of how this image was created, particularly in the 60s by pioneers, or I shouldn't say pioneers because he seems like the pioneer, Timothy Leary is a name you hear a lot associated with psychedelics for the work he did at Harvard, but he was also very outspoken and in some ways probably put too much attention on himself and then negative attention on psychedelics, which has left a lasting impact and effect on how we think about them, because they were being researched quite regularly, or there was lots of studies looking at the effects of psychedelics on treating things like addiction, alcoholism, um, depression, people dealing with end-of-life, for example, if they have a terminal diagnosis of cancer. uh, There's lots of research that was being done, but then because of the backlash that these types of drugs received for several decades, they disappeared or the research disappeared or went underground as these drugs became illegal. But now there's been a resurgence uh, quite recently where people are starting to research them again with some promising results. So it's interesting because psychedelic drugs can in a way open your mind. That's something that people experience when they're on them. But I think it's important for us to have an open mind When we look at psychedelic drugs and their potential for healing or for helping people who are suffering or just helping everyday people um, live a better life or create a new perspective, because when we hear a drug like LSD or think of a drug like LSD or even MDMA which as Michael Pollan mentions, is not quite considered a psychedelic by most people, but has similar effects for some people, but we might some people might ca- characterize it as similar. MDMA would be ecstasy, or what now uh, is the main ingredient in a drug like molly, um, which is being used or is being studied in treating PTSD and doing actually quite well. But when we think of these drugs, because they're used recreationally and because they have these negative connotations that we might have that are associated with them, we can very easily write them off and think, okay, come on, how can LSD, how can dropping acid be something that helps someone heal? And it's these judgments that can very often get in the way of really seeing what's there and if there is any potential benefit. Because when a drug becomes illegal, uh, for example, in the United States, people assume something about it. And this is similar to what we see with something like marijuana, where my whole life until just very recently, marijuana was illegal And so because of that, people assumed it has to be really bad, or for example, worse than cigarettes or alcohol, when I actually don't think that's necessarily the case. All of those drugs have different effects and impacts, but we assume that because marijuana was illegal till just recently here in the United States, it somehow has has to be worse than them. But when you look at the physical effects, I think it's very clear that smoking cigarettes is far worse than using marijuana. And there's negative effects that alcohol have or has, but because it's been legal, we think of it in a different way. So we have to try to have that same approach to something like psychedelics. Because if I told you there was a new drug that was helping in the treatment of depression, you'd probably think, okay, that's great. Let's see what it can do. But then when you find out it's LSD or a drug that you've heard people use recreationally, you tend to think of it in a different way. And maybe you'll write off that research. But thankfully, there are many good, credible scientists who are looking at these drugs and their potential to help and to heal. And in reading this book, I I was really intrigued by this prospect, and I'm definitely not planning to do it anytime very soon, but it did make me think about trying it myself to see what it would be like. Uh, The way he presents it in the book, you see that there could be a lot of benefit. These drugs, the psychedelics, have almost no risk of addiction, which is very good, and very little risk whatsoever. There can be some, um, and that even can be affected very largely by how it is used. Uh, The set and the setting are very important. Those are terms that came up a lot in the book. The set is your mindset uh, and intention when you take the drug, and the setting is the context, both physically and also who else you have around. Because very often when people do try a psychedelic, especially for the first time, they have a guide or someone who's there with them to help make sure they're okay and to guide them through the journey because it can be a very intense one. So even in saying that I'm considering uh, or it crossed my mind of trying it myself, nothing I'm planning to do in the immediate future, I don't want to in any way endorse the idea of just trying these drugs yourself because that can have a negative impact if you don't. Uh, take them in the right way or with the right set and setting. So not at all am I endorsing taking them on your own and seeing what you experience and that it will change your life. It actually can have a negative impact. Um, So Michael Pollan, he says himself, he was very skeptical or anxious about trying the drugs. But after talking with so many people and doing his research, he decided that he would give it a shot. It wasn't his plan initially when he was writing the book and doing all the research for the book but then he he did recognize that he wanted to try. And so he talks about a few journeys he has in trying the drugs, and it's quite fascinating. And he used what you can call guided therapists. He was always with a guide and went through a process that first involved usually preliminary work of first making sure he was okay to do it, a kind of like a screening process, and also some preparatory work of getting him in the mind, right mindset. And then the experience itself, and then also... There would be sessions usually afterwards, like the next day, to integrate the experience, to see what insights he might have experienced, what he saw, what he experienced, and what he might learn from um, the psychedelic journey that he had went on. And people experience lots of different things, um, visual perceptions that are quite intense, and they'll notice the beauty in things they maybe didn't see or sometimes see things that uh, are a little bit on the side of almost a hallucination, and that's why sometimes uh, initially they were considered to mimic psychosis. These drugs. Uh, even he talks about um, when he was on one of these journeys where he took a psychedelic drug and he went to the bathroom, and he describes even his urine looking like like a stream of diamonds <laughs> coming out into and going to the toilet or the yeah the toilet and splashing in a way that was also beautiful, which is quite interesting, almost funny, but um, not an uncommon experience that people have on these drugs to see things in a remarkable way that usually we see as mundane or experiencing uh, something that might be bordering on a hallucination. But one thing that you commonly see people experience on these drugs is that their sense of separateness from the rest of the world, whether you want to call that ego or sense of self, it starts to disintegrate. And rather than that feeling really bad, it actually can feel very good, feeling so connected with the whole universe, seeing even in a way life and consciousness and other things, plants, animals that they maybe didn't experience before. But this dissolution of me being so distinct from the rest of the world very often seems to be a very, what you might call mystical experience, something he talks about the book, but a very meaningful one that people have. And people can have these insights that can seem very plain, like love is everything. But in the moment of being under the influence of that drug, recognize the depth in it and how it actually can be so important. And it does sometimes create lasting changes in their mindset or the way they look at things. Or for example, uh, he talks about the treatment of things like addiction, where sometimes people who had issues with smoking, they've done some trials and after One time of using the psychedelic drug, they stopped smoking um, quite remarkably. And smoking is a very difficult drug to quit, but they had some pretty good success rates for treating addiction, also for treating um, treatment-resistant depression. And usually what that means is where one or two, or at least I think two treatments have been tried, usually medications and therapy but the person has remained depressed and sometimes people saw a change, sometimes feeling happy for the first time. Now, sometimes those changes were only temporary or short-lived, they didn't last uh, forever. It wasn't that depression never came back, but it still could have a meaningful impact. So we're seeing that there is a lot of promise for what these drugs can potentially do for addiction, for depression. Also a very big one was for people who were going through things like cancer and terminal illnesses, where it made them much better at facing their own death. They were much less afraid of their own death, and it made their last months or years a lot more peaceful for themselves and their families, which was quite interesting. Uh, Also, I wanted to add, now the drugs seem to work in doing things like taking away this feeling of self or ego and a lot of other things, but that could be one big thing. But we also see that people who are master meditators, those who have meditated for years and for many, many hours, they've done research on the brains of these people and they found it actually is similar to the brains of someone who is taking one of these psychedelic drugs, that there is this uh, being very present in the moment, but also this loss of self that can be seen uh, similar in these brains. And I thought that was quite interesting. So these drugs aren't necessarily all bad, But maybe it's trying to accelerate something that we can naturally do on our own, which we should also consider that through meditation, maybe we can achieve this type of a state without having to add a chemical to our brain and body. But also the book makes it very clear that we shouldn't think of these chemicals as so negative as maybe we do. And even for me, when I hear of LSD and acid, I think of something that's going to cause brain damage and really hurt someone. But this might not be the case. So I'm happy these people are doing research and they're continuing to do research and it's becoming um, less stigmatized because it was for several decades to do research on psychedelics. But we are moving towards looking at this with science and rigor and trying to figure out what it is that these drugs can do and, of course, what they can't do. It's not like any one drug is going to help everything or if it's helpful in depression it just cures it all together but that it could be helpful for some people and we should make sure we don't leave any stone unturned or in this case any mushroom unturned to see how it can be helpful in helping people with various uh, issues or things they're dealing with so really interesting book highly recommend it how to change your mind by michael Pollan. again a big thanks to my brother parham who really recommended and pushed me towards reading this book so i hope you will read it too. And probably after the break, I'm going to talk a bit more about this idea of the sense of self and how uh, it's not all bad, but it can really lead to a lot of suffering. And this is one way that psychedelic drugs seem to be meaningful or create meaning for people when they experience it. So I'll talk a bit about that after the break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. (music) Back in the previous segment, I was talking about the book, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, where he explores uh, the new science of psychedelics and goes through the history of psychedelics and also even the neuroscience. And it's a very interesting book in that regard, too. Uh, One thing I mentioned was that many people who take these drugs, uh, they have a lot of different experiences, but one that you commonly hear or people report is this idea of their sense of self dissolving. And feeling more interconnected with other people. And not just other people, but nature and just the whole world. And this actually wonderful feeling it has. It might sound scary to lose your sense of self. What people tend to experience is a very beautiful feeling of being one with the world. And feeling that interconnectedness. People also experience things like losing that fear of death. As I mentioned, people with terminal illnesses who have been treated with psychedelics often report that they lost that fear of death. It didn't seem so scary anymore once they realized how much they were part of the rest of the world or uh, various things and insights that they experienced while on the the LSD or the drug that they took, that they no longer fear death. and This allowed them to live the last part of their life much better and much more at peace. And I wanted to talk about this idea of the sense of self, which um, is so much at the heart of what these drugs can do, but also something that we can think about in our own life and our own experience in general, because our sense of self is something we think of as very real, that I am me and I have a unique identity and um, you are you, whoever you are listening and everyone else is their own person, but there's a very big separateness that we experience. And although this seems very real and true it could be worth wondering is this really the truth is that the the whole picture and um, we can look at this also from an evolutionary perspective because we know that just like our physical bodies have evolved uh from an evolutionary by evolutionary pressures and influences so has our psychology and there's a whole field of evolutionary psychology that looks at this trying to understand why our brain and minds have evolved the way they have to think the ways they do and to to make us do the things that we do because there has to be some reasons behind that some evolutionary reasons so if you look at the sense of self it, it makes a lot of sense to have that if you want to promote um, your genes if you want to create more of your genes to pass them on it's important for you to think a lot about yourself and so we see that as humans we're very preoccupied with us right well, how am i doing physically biologically that is important but then also because we're such social animals we have to focus a lot socially too how do i look to other people how do people look at me what do they think of me what are my relationships like how do i feel in my relationships how do i think um, people are going to react to me, respond to me. And so this brings with it a whole b- bunch of things like anxiety and social anxiety and depression and, and many other things. But we can see that there was some advantage, possibly from an evolutionary perspective, of emphasizing and almost being pr- very focused on my sense of self and who I am and where I end and where everyone else is. And that I need to be focused on me. But this isn't really the whole picture because we do see how interconnected we are and what i see in a way it was touched on in the book um, by michael Pollan here is a lot of the issues we see psychologically are exaggerations of what might be an okay thing the sense of self isn't of course all bad but this obsession with the self or the preoccupation we can have with the self can cause so many problems and so many of the things we see as mental health issues. For example, as I just mentioned about social anxiety, we get so preoccupied with our sense of self and how I'm going to look and how people might judge me negatively, positively. Um, They want to be my friend or they'll make fun of me, whatever it might be that I can have strong anxiety that even keeps me from doing things that would be good for me, like creating relationships or being social or making connections i say to myself because of that because of an over preoccupation with my sense of self or depression can sometimes be a negative feeling towards the self negative judgment towards the self can be a part of that so what we see is something that might be okay like recognizing my sense of self but taken to an extreme and unhealthy level causing all of these problems and so what the psychedelic drugs Can do for some people when they have this experience is that it makes them realize this feeling of being so separate from the world and from everyone else isn't really that true. And I think there actually is a lot of truth to that. And maybe it could be both at the same time. There is, let's say, a distinct me where my body ends and even who I am to a degree, but it doesn't mean it's completely separate from the rest of the world. At every level, if we look at it from chemistry or atoms, I'm breathing out atoms that right now Amir is here in the studio, his breath might take in while we're here. And in the larger scope of the world, that's going to be happening a lot. Or even where my cells are changing and my skin changes and it probably goes into the atmosphere in different ways and is interacting in different ways. So this feeling of me being so separate, being so not everything else, isn't so clear where that line is, even though in my brain it can seem so clear that there is a me that has to be so different from you, or that has to be so distinct from you. And I think this is something that also happens when we have relationships, as we start to blur those lines, where when we start to love someone, we still have that feeling of self, but we do feel like we're merging with someone else. Sometimes that can happen to an unhealthy level where we lose completely ourselves, but there is something beautiful about that connection that we create. And even that word connection means, in a way, Although maybe we think of it as a metaphor, but that an emotional level, at least, there is a place where we are so connected, I don't end and you begin. There's somewhere there where we're actually connected, where we become one. And most people who have these insights, and also meditators can get there too. This insight of where I end is not necessarily the way I think of it, and I can see myself more interconnected with the world. They become much more at peace, actually. So again, it's not this terrifying feeling of, I lose myself. I don't know who I am or what I am anymore, but this feeling of merging with the whole world, something bigger, something greater that feels good. And it would make sense that when we do this, we become less self-conscious. When I don't see me as so distinct from you, I'm not going to be as afraid of your judgment. I'm not going to be as afraid of what happens in our interaction. And also I'm gonna not see as much of a distinction in helping you and helping me. And that's another thing that people tend to experience when they start to lose this sense of self or it becomes less strong that I'm so distinct from the rest of the world. They care about everything and everyone much more because hurting you is hurting me. I don't see it as so different. So how could I hurt you intentionally or unintentionally? Or how could I wish harm upon you when that is still me? It's almost like we're seeing the whole world as one organism. We're all connected. There isn't such a big distinction. So I think there is a lot of value in moving towards this feeling of losing that sense of self that feels so strong, that makes us so focused on so many things, including this feeling of I have to make sure I'm so special and unique and that everyone sees that, that I have to shine above everyone else, which I think you're seeing more and more in this generation but feeling like i have to stand out because i don't want to just be part of the rest but i think we can actually realize there's a wonderful feeling in being part of this world of being connected to it and i think psychedelics maybe can help people have that experience but i don't think it is the only way i definitely think through meditation we can experience that but also just to think about this idea that this concept of the sense of self that seems so strong and real like it is such a given that I am me and you are you, and there's such a distinction between us, that we can start to dissolve that a bit, to see that interconnectedness and recognize that there isn't such a separation between us. And we can interact in a way that also reflects that. And I think it allows people to live their life much more comfortably and freely when they do that. When we see that I don't need to be attached to my sense of self. I like the phrase that came up a few times in the book, people talking about uh, psychedelics and what the experience can do, but they talk about the prison of self, like this prison in our own mind that we can feel stuck in, this prison of self where we feel stuck in who I am and what I am and judging ourselves negatively of worrying about the future, which is anxiety or being sad about the past and having regret about the past, that's depression and not staying in the moment. And we can get very much caught up in this prison of self and the pain of that. But we can let ourselves out. It is a self imposed prison, this prison of self, which might sound obvious because it's a prison of self, but we might think we're so stuck in it that there's no way out. But there definitely is. And we can let ourselves out to recognize I don't have to stay stuck in me in my own brain i can be connected to the world and to others and recognize i don't have to be so preoccupied in this way so it's up to each and every one of us to recognize this idea of self but also realize that it could become a prison and we have to make sure we don't let ourselves get stuck in that prison where it takes away from our life and who we are and even our relationships with other people that we when we lose that sense of self as being such a strong attachment it becomes a lot easier to be loving to all those around us, first to yourself and to loved ones, but then even to the world at large. And I think that's something we hopefully will all strive towards. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 310 You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty delacroix We'll be right back. You know, in this last segment, um, I wanted to talk about an issue that, especially here in the United States, has been all over the news. I was out of the country, so I felt a little bit disconnected from some of it. I tried to follow it as much as I could and um, still feel like I have a lot more to look into it. So I almost didn't want to talk about it tonight, but I think it's hard not to. Um, so I will. So this is the idea or the what's going on here with the Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and how there was a hearing last week where someone had come forward um, from his past back in high school saying that she was sexually assaulted um, by him. And it's become quite the cause of a lot of attention. And I don't have all the details to feel like I can report on it so well. And so I want to be make that point clear. But the reason why I also wanted to talk about it was because uh, two weeks ago, I think it was the last show that I did. I had a caller who brought up this issue. And back then, um, all that I knew, and it, because it, it just surfaced, was that someone had made an accusation about him from when he was in high school. And the caller asked me, What does that mean about him, or what, how we can judge him? And I didn't like some of the things I said in hindsight. Um, because I was maybe undermining too much this idea that if it was in fact sexual assault that that wouldn't be a big deal. I was making the point that to judge someone as as to who they are by something they did when they're 17 we have to be careful about because people change a lot and we all did stupid things when we were teenagers that if we look back on maybe we aren't so proud of or wouldn't be something that we'd want to share with people. But I don't think it's fair to look at sexual assault the same way, and that's why I did want to make some comments about that uh, tonight because I think I left that too open or made it seem like, well, if he did that when he was a teenager, it's not a big deal. We should overlook that, and I don't think that's the case and that's fair, and I think that would be too much in line with what's unfortunately kept these problems from happening so much throughout history, and especially recent history, that we haven't been outspoken enough about sexual assault against women. So I still do think that, yes, when you look at someone who is 16 and 17, I wouldn't say if they did something bad, that would mean that they shouldn't, let's say, hold a job or hold any kind of power. But there are certain things that are more important, and of course, certain positions that are very important. And here, the Supreme Court is the highest legal Um, station you can have is to be a Supreme Court judge. So these people need to be scrutinized at a different level than other people. And sexual assault is something that we should take very seriously and not at all make it that we can say, well, boys will be boys. So if he did this, it's okay. And unfortunately, that is some of the response that it is getting. So to begin with, um, when you talk to women and i also might want to make it clear here i am as a man talking about what women go through um, but i can only speak as a man on this but i want to make that point clear that i know that i can try to talk about it but never fully understand what it's like but when you talk to women and and really hear about their experiences you see that what is so painful is that almost every one of them has something that they've experienced now, it might not be a full-on sexual assault, but unfortunately that is much more common than most people would like to think. But some level of sexual harassment are being made very uncomfortable uh, in school or in the workplace in ways that are really not acceptable. But also, you unfortunately will often hear the feeling of powerlessness, that there was a feeling that there wasn't much they could do rather than try to avoid it or ignore it or try to remove themselves from a situation at best, but they really didn't have much of a choice. And I think we have to look at how much a part of our culture this is, how accepted it is for men to act in a certain way, especially men in power, that it's almost expected, uh, accepted, allowed, and something that just we have to deal with where women have to deal with is that this is going to happen. And I don't think it's okay for us to just accept that and to stop there. We have to recognize how wrong it is and make it very clear that we're not okay with this. That if you say you care about human rights and women's rights, this is part of that issue. That we have to look at this very seriously and say, this is never okay. It's never just boys will be boys. And we should accept that they're going to do that. We have to look at the bigger culture and what we're creating when we say that, that maybe it is okay. Or if you're a teenager and you do these things, well, then it's okay. Although we see that men do it and they get away with it also, but this idea that it's ever okay is something that we should make very clear to our boys and our girls from a young age and a society that we're not going to accept or tolerate these things. And as a psychologist, I get to hear lots of stories of people who have been Um, just abused, assaulted in in various ways. And then in my personal life too, sometimes you talk to people and I've heard some recent stories um, from people just, and it's heartbreaking to hear what they have gone through. For example, in their professional life, someone who has worked hard and studied and is very capable, but then enters the workforce and is somehow treated as less than or disrespected in a certain way doesn't get the same opportunities because of their sex because they're a woman because their male employees and counterparts treat them differently and even sometimes treat them in very disrespectful ways and it's something that i think it's hard for a man for myself to imagine because it's not something that ever crosses my mind i don't have to think about this when i enter a workforce or was i was in school or went somewhere, this idea uh, of sexual harassment, although it does happen to men too. Usually the perpetrators still other men, but it can happen even by women. But the majority of the cases are, are that women are the victims. But it's not something I even think about. I have to worry about these things. But when you look at women, you see that almost all of them, when they're, for example, getting a new job, they're, of course, as anyone is going to be maybe nervous, excited about starting the job and the challenges and what it means for their career and whatever else those things are professionally. But almost every woman you talk to will also talk about the preparation they do to try to prevent sexual harassment or assaults from happening in general. But even when they enter a new job, if they have managers who are males or a boss who's a male, how they almost have to be ready for this to see what's going to happen. Or just that not knowing, is my boss going to be one of those bosses that acts in this way towards women. And then what am I going to have to do? Or how will I prepare myself for this? Maybe I'll wear a wedding ring to let people know I'm not even available. Maybe that'll create some protection for me. Or what else can I do to do this? And that's something that I never have to think about, but I don't even realize it's not something I have to worry about because I never had to think about it. But when you talk to women and their experience, you see how common this is that it's just essentially a part of their thinking a part of their mindset when they're entering really any new place or just in general that they have to constantly be aware of these types of things and i think that's very sad and something we should really think about and ask ourselves is this okay is this the type of society we want to accept or can say is is okay for us and i think the answer should clearly be no this is not okay And, um, people have their reactions to things like the Me Too movement. I think it's definitely a very good thing. Now, one thing people will talk about a lot is, well, now anyone could just say anything. And is false accusation something that can or even does happen? It, It does. But I think the much bigger problem is people not being able to report. Or something you've heard even in this case where, um... Christine Ford has come forward now to make this accusation. Why didn't she say anything earlier or she owed it to us to say something earlier? But we don't know, or I think most people are not aware of how difficult it is for a woman to come forward and make these types of claims, to report something like this that happens. Even hospitals will often report or will um, act in ways that are very mean to a woman who comes forward saying they were raped. And the woman is going there to get treatment and also to get tested and to gather evidence. They have things like rape kits here in the United States to gather evidence um, for that. But many women have reported that they went when they went in, there was a feeling of being blamed for that. Or that maybe they were pretending that it was rape. And imagine you've gone through something that's potentially the most traumatizing thing you've ever experienced. And you go somewhere where you're supposed to be helped by uh, basically caregivers in a sense in that moment. And they're treating you like you're the problem or you're doing something wrong. But women face lots and lots of problems when they try to come forward. From potentially losing their jobs, if it's a a boss or employee, um, to legal issues, to shame. I can't tell you the number of times I've worked with families that they tell me that when I was a kid, uh, someone in my family touched me or did this to me. And I went to my parents or I went to my family and they blamed me. Or they completely denied it or they made me feel like the problem that somehow I caused it or that I was completely lying and making it up. The number of times I've heard stories like this where someone comes forward to their family, again, the people even more than, let's say, a hospital and doctors who are supposed to love you and care for you and nurture you and protect you. And you tell them that someone has hurt me and violated me in one of the worst ways imaginable. And their response is negative, puts you down to make you feel bad you're the problem you're the issue you're making it up you're crazy whatever else it might be and even still encouraging them to spend time with that family member which is just crazy but i've heard so many of these stories that i can assure you that it is very very common and of course very very unfortunate but when we think it's so easy for someone to just come forward when they've been hurt we have to realize how incredibly difficult it is and the challenges they face and this is another area we have to be aware of not only um, that we don't accept this kind of behavior from men but that our response is different that when someone comes forward we try to give them that space and respect and recognize how difficult it is to talk about being violated in this way and to treat that person with respect and let them share what's happened to them it's not okay to put them down and to judge them to make them feel bad Do people make things up? Absolutely. But let's err on the side of letting people share when they're being victimized, when they're being assaulted, than to think we should doubt everyone that comes forward and says something. I would rather err on that side than to err on the side of not letting people talk, which is what has been happening for years and years and generations. And we have to move away from that. So in the case of Brett Kavanaugh, do I know what happened? Of course not. I can't tell you that what... um, Dr. Ford was sharing was in fact what has happened. But I think we have to at least hear it out, and I hope they investigate it more deeply than what they've done so far. And unfortunately, these issues become so politically polarized that one side wants one thing and the other side wants another thing, and really no one's looking for the truth or looking for what's right. They're just trying to do what's right for their party. And so I don't know what's going to happen in this case, but it's definitely brought up a lot of issues. Um, in the wake of the Me Too movement, which already has created so much momentum, but we're seeing it even more, and people were very hurt by the responses of many people, and I was too, and you'd read how people responded to Dr. Ford coming forward, and there was a lot of negative backlash, and she knew she was going to get that. And let's just think, again, we don't know what happened, but let's say she was, in fact, the victim of sexual assault. To think that by coming forward, you're going to face so much negativity, That's really sad and scary that someone has to feel that way. And I was really saddened by that. Um, and, And I think for a lot of women, this has brought up a lot of issues of remembering things they've gone through and that many people were commending her courage for coming forward. And I feel the same way that she came forward to share something very difficult. And we'll see what the results are. And for me personally, it's not about a political thing, but what I saw from Brett Kavanaugh his um, testimony or his hearing was definitely not someone I would like to see on the Supreme Court. It's not because I disagree with what he believes, which I might in some things and areas, but just his attitude, the way he treated the whole situation, um, how emotionally up and down he was. As a psychologist, I'm very okay with people having emotions and being emotional, but it just seemed that he was a very angry person and not someone that I would want to be put on the highest court in the land to make decisions with a sense of rationality. Just didn't seem like he had that. And so I wasn't very happy with what I saw from him. And I don't think uh, to me at all, he showed himself in a way of someone deserving to be on that court, whether or not actually what even happened there, of course, if he committed these sexual assaults and the other ones that have now come forward, even worse, but even just who he was to me, I was quite unimpressed by him uh, from a psychological perspective as someone holding that kind of a position to me does not make sense. And so we'll see what happens going forward. But the bigger picture issue and the more important one is this idea of sexual assault and what women go through on a daily basis and how much... It has been accepted and tolerated throughout our culture for so long. And we have to resist that. We have to fight against that and realize that when we try to make a change like that, it's going to make people uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult. It involves having conversations we'd like to avoid, having things come up that we'd rather not have to deal with. But that's the reality of it. And we have to recognize it's worth trying to create change in a positive direction where all people can feel comfortable and safe whether they're at home or the workplace, and not have to worry that, one, they can be attacked or assaulted, and that, two, if they are and they try to come forward, they will receive a lot of negative treatment. Neither one of those things are okay, and we have to do better. We must do better. All right, that's the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio and all of you listening out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night.